Welcome to the Staying Golden Podcast, where we'll be catching up with Laurier alumni to give the Laurier community a glimpse of what the future may hold after graduation. We would like to acknowledge that Wilfrid Laurier University and its campuses are located on the Haldeman Track, traditional territory of the Neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples. Today we are hosting a special edition of the Staying Golden podcast for National Indigenous History Month, featuring Laurie alumna Charity Fleming. Charity is the president and co-owner of Coelia Counseling Services and also an instructor at the Faculty of Social Work at Laurier. Charity is an Indigenous social worker and is an intergenerational survivor of the residential school and 60 scoop programs and has dedicated her life to aiding the recovery of Indigenous people from experiences and impacts of historical trauma. We are honored and grateful to learn from Charity's wisdom, knowledge, and experience in Indigenous communities during this episode. Welcome, Charity. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Ani, buju, thank you. That means hello in Anishinaabe Moen. Um, thank you so much for having me, Mary. I'm delighted to be here today with you. I was connected with you. I was trying to remember, like, when did we get connected? And I think I was connected with you at the start of the pandemic. And you have been doing amazing things to support other therapists throughout this pandemic. And mo most recently, I was made aware that you've created a new course that I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about. Yeah, thank you so much. That is so kind of you to say about me, first of all. Um, and yeah, I'm very excited. So recently I launched an online version and live version of my new course. It's called McWendigwad, which means it is remembered or it comes to mind. So it's a call to remember um, our Indigenous teachings, but it's also a play on words for CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy uh, as it comes to mind. And so um, this course, it's been a labor of love. Um, it's been in creation probably my entire career, so 15 years uh, that I've been working in Indigenous community as an Indigenous person. And um, it's, it's taken me a long time to figure out how do I use CBT, um, a mainstream Western modality, uh, how do I use this well in Indigenous community? for Indigenous people that really want CBT, but that also don't want to forsake or give up or sacrifice um, their culture or, you know, teachings that reflect their culture. So the course, uh, it, it was developed, um, so for learners, it was developed using weaving ways. Um, so woven all throughout the course is Indigenous language, um, audio, recording so we have you know representation of oral uh oral history and oral uh ways of learning and then um all sorts of other things that make uh cbt culturally adapted so um there are a lot of different culturally adapted cbt models and interventions across the world um cbt is is very well uh, known to be one of the number one ranking evidence-based modalities there is in treating mental health. 
So um, it's been culturally adapted all over the world. And I thought, you know, we really need to indigenous culturally adapt CBT. Um, so this is the first course that I'm aware of on Turtle Island or North America um, that does that. So, and like I said, it's done for the learner, um, but then also we have all of these interventions um, which reflect culture and, you know, worksheets and resources for clients who are receiving the services um, so that culture is reflected and used um, to promote good mental health and to also teach CBT. That's amazing. I, I'm just curious as somebody who isn't trained in social work, just can you give us an example of an adapted intervention? Yeah, absolutely. And I think even if you are trained in social work, you would probably want that example. Um, and it is interesting with culturally adapted CBT because you can adapt um, adapt interventions in many different ways. You can adapt it uh, with language or you know with graphics or storytelling, metaphors that relate uh, people from that culture will relate to. And I tried to do it all. <laughs> so um, one intervention, so just the model overall. So CBT um, is based on what's called the five factor model. Uh, and typically when people are, you know, using the five factor model as clinicians with clients, um, if you use a whiteboard or if you use a handout, what it is, is it just says like situations on the top. And then there's sort of like, you know, I just lovingly and laughingly say, you know, sticks and boxes. <laughs> and so there's, you know, a stick that points or an arrow that points to a box that then says thoughts, that points to a box that says emotions and then behaviors and then, you know, physical um, self or feelings. And so it's just sort of like an empty page, uh, very stark and <laughs> sticks and boxes. And um, so I took that and, and wove into that um, indigenous culture. So it's uh, instead of the five factor model, it's called the circle of strength um, uh, or sacred circle CBT model. And so we take the circle, which has a lot of meaning across Indigenous cultures, um, and weave in as well uh, strengths-based language, so that circle of strength. And then within that circle, at the center of the circle, so I, I actually used a graphic designer, and we made beautiful, beautiful representations. Um, I used just to acknowledge and honor his work or their work. So uh, Josh Morley, uh, he's an Indigenous graphic designer, and then also Gista Kennedy, uh, who is also an Indigenous graphic designer. So I use those um, graphic designers just to lift up <laughs> their work as Indigenous professionals. Um, but uh, yeah, so in the center, it's our two people. And I wanted that as a reminder, a reflection to the client themselves that they are never alone. Um, and then also, so they're around a, a sacred fire, which is meaningful to us. And, um, you know, those, that representation, just of that sacred fire for Indigenous people, for ceremony or symbolism that we use in terms of how do we nurture our own or rekindle our own sacred fires of our spirit. Um, and then that goes out into the seven directions, which is also very meaningful to us. I could probably talk about half an hour on this, 
on this one model that everything in the course is based off of. Um, I do have a video and I think it's about 20 minutes. So, but anyways, it's all been woven into, and the circle is made of sweet grass, which is really meaningful to indigenous people, um, which holds a lot of different teachings, but just incorporating, you know, the mind, the body and the soul. Um, and then within that sweet grass, there's graphics as well that go along with um, the mind, the body, the spirit or the soul, um, and then also uh, the heart or our feelings and emotions. And then there's um, a moccasin trail, essentially, that reminds us to look to see what is the journey that we're taking, um, you know, what's the path that we're, we're going down, um, and, you know, is it towards an Anishinaabe Moan? Uh, Minobimadzwin, the good life. So all of that uh, replaces the sticks and the, <laughs> and the boxes. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful graphic. And so all of the interventions um, are similar. So with CBT, there's probably 20 or 30 different interventions um, from the five-factor model, which I just spoke about, to you know thought records, which has been adapted to core beliefs. Um, and so all of those are adapted and in the course, the teachings are taught um, that reflect those graphics. Uh, and then there's also videos and uh, lots and lots of handouts <laughs> so that clients can take those teachings and learn more about them themselves. Um, but again, so that that culture is reflected back and um, the client, you know, when they're going through that difficult time, maybe in their day where they go to fill out um, what would normally be the five-factor model, that automatically they're being reminded of their inner strength and their culture um, and the things that uh, give them hope and uplift them. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Charity, if you have, if you want to send me the link, we could put it in the show, the podcast notes as well to that video. Sure. You mentioned, and we can, yeah. We can do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And people can get more information if they're more, if they're interested in learning more. I know that we're kind of doing high level, um, yeah. high level bits right now, but, um, who is this course open to? Yeah, the course is open to anyone, I believe, with an undergrad um, or with the experience. You do have to register through the Faculty of Social Work Continuing Ed. Um, so typically, I think they recommend an undergrad degree, um, but it's open to anyone with those uh, that meets that criteria or those requirements, uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous allies. So having run the course through um, once online and once live over Zoom, uh, I would say it's a, a mix of half and half of uh, Indigenous professionals as well as non-Indigenous allies. Uh, so it's really nice and it's been beautiful so far um, in the course that I, that I just finished actually last weekend. We ended with tears, <laughs> tears of gratitude and appreciation for one another and the material and the sharing. Um, and it's, you know, a really nice community of learners. That's amazing. And I know that this course for you is sort of your part of your organization's responses to like the TRC calls to action and how you can support that work in the community. And I am curious as to where you feel our country is with respect to TRC calls to action six years later. 
Um, and often the question is, what can allies do to support the work that needs to be done? Yes, that is a big, <laughs> very loaded question. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think um, it's interesting. Uh, so I'll try to answer all of those, all of those things. Um, but definitely in terms of truth and reconciliation calls to action, I think about the truth and reconciliation um, report and uh, movement uh, across the country that happened in, in, in 2015. So yeah, I, I we're almost, I think we passed seven years or close to seven years. Um, and when I think about this, I'm often moved to tears because I know even within my own family history um, of experiences of residential school trauma and the 60s scoop, um, how hard it is for some people to come forward or for many people to come forward and to be able to speak to the things that they experienced for the benefit of reconciliation. And so, you know, I think of some of the stories which were shared at the time that the, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission was going through the country and collecting these stories. And I remember one stands out in my mind of um, uh, a person coming and sharing his story uh, of abuse and his experiences of trauma in residential school. And his son was there with him in tears because he had never heard that story before. Um, but this man was coming forward, um, I would say with a, uh, with a heart of courage um, and also taking such a huge risk of vulnerability to share, to share uh, for the benefit of others, to share for the benefit of Canada as a nation, to move towards reconciliation. And um, I think about the, so there was over 7,000 people that came forward across the nation. And I know so many people that chose not to come forward. And I respect that and I honor that. And, and just because their voices weren't present during that time doesn't mean that it's not meaningful. Um, or their experiences aren't meaningful. But I think, you know, honoring to honor those voices is important. The report that came out of that um, with the 94 calls to action, um, that is supposed to be Canada's way to respond to those and to respond to the history of colonial violence and ongoing systemic discrimination, which is uh, still experienced uh, en masse by Indigenous people. And there was a recent study, uh, research done, um, I think it was from the Southern Chiefs uh, of Alberta, I could be wrong on that, sorry if I am, but recently in the fall where they, um, they had done a study in 92% of Indigenous people um, reported that they experienced racism in healthcare. And so, you know, looking to see, I mean, the last time that I looked, I think there was 11 um, of the 94 calls to action, which have been uh, responded to. There is a really good website. I think it's called Watchdog. Oh, I should have looked this up. I'm sorry, but <laughs> it's called like Truth and Reconciliation Watchdog or Native Watchdog, where they are constantly reporting on, on, um, the the truth and reconciliation reports and calls to action and what's been responded to and um i know that there was a couple things that actually went backwards in the last year 
So anyways, at this rate, I think, you know, not all of these calls to action could be completed within a person's lifetime. So we're looking at another 70 years. So it's just completely inexcusable. Um, and I think Canadians also feel this is inexcusable. And I know for, my, for me personally, um, as the grave sites have been discovered uh, at residential schools, you know, this has been, you know, the voice of the children, the voice of, I, I think of my ancestors, um, the whispers of the children coming up. And we say that the ground, you know, it carries the ashes and the bones of our ancestors. And here across Canada for Indigenous people has done so for millennia. And, um, and so they speak to us and, uh, you know, these children, they aren't silent. And as their grave sites are, are discovered, I saw, you know, a huge outpouring from uh, Canadians, non-Indigenous Canadians who were outraged, um, who I would say were awakened to the issues and the problems, um, who want to do something, who want the government to be re more responsive. Um, however, 11 out of 94 calls to action is inexcusable. And I think there is, I mean, at the same time, I don't want to punish the good work that's being done um, because I think there is work being done, but I think it depends more on us as individuals, um, as collectives, as communities to try to lift up this work. And specifically, I know, you know, I was uh, in preparation for this. I was, you know, re reviewing the calls to action and I mean, typically because I'm in mental health, you know, I focus on mental health and healthcare, which is to really acknowledge the gap in outcomes between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And those gaps are huge. So when we think of, I'm going to, I'll include with um, uh, or send to you a handout and I call it genocide's burden of illness because whenever there's genocide in countries or across you know, the world, it's the relatives and the descendants of those people who experience that, who have drastically, you know, poor health and mental health outcomes. And it's actually intergenerational trauma that's carried through DNA signatures from those generations. And it carries down to three generations after that predispose those people to worse health and mental health outcomes. And so the list is very long, you know, some of it is, you know, um, more widely uh, known of things like six to 11 times uh, rates of suicide for Indigenous people versus non-Indigenous people. Some of it's less widely known, but I say these are the areas of continued genocide. So suicide rates that high, um, the infant mortality rate, it's still, so I think the infant mortality rate is two to three and a half times um, more for Indigenous uh, babies or infants compared to non-Indigenous. Um, and then, you know, the life expectancy is 10 to 14 years less for an Indigenous person than a non-Indigenous person. So this is continued genocide, you know, the, the lack of attention to these things, knowing these alarming rates that are linked to early death, premature death, um, I think is continued genocide. And just because it's, you know, it's easy to ignore and to not take responsibility for these things doesn't mean, you know, that that's obviously right. 
Um, but the other things with mental health, you know, an indigenous person is two to three times more likely to be hospitalized for mental illness, to experience depression, anxiety. Um, of course, PTSD is far, far greater. Um, and then health outcomes, so diabetes is, is much higher, still tuberculosis. Um, and then there's some of these social issues. I mean, these issues like that, I can see where some people may feel hopeless or powerless. How do we affect change? As social workers, I think we can do a lot. Um, but there's some things like access to clean drinking water, which Canada, and especially when we think of Canada, it's one of like one of the leading countries in the world in terms of amount of water <laughs> that we have. Um, and I know I've listened to some of our elders and some of our leaders from different First Nations where they drank, they just drank the water out of their, out of the lakes, you know, um, a couple generations ago and the, the water pollution, even in my own First Nation, Wabasking First Nation, we're right beside Grassy Narrows, if people <clears throat> have heard of that, but uh, experienced high, uh, high prevalence of mercury poisoning from this uh, paper mill that dumped into our water supply, killed a lot of our natural resources, our fish. Anyways, that's a very long conversation, but Currently, 25% of First Nations in Ontario do not have access to clean drinking water. Like, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. So when we think about uh, the outpouring of, you know, the country and people when uh, with Walkerton and um, the contamination of the water there, uh, there was such in terms of, you know, social response and awareness and uh, media response there was such high focus on Walkerton and um, our First Nations who we are were the caretakers of this water um, we you know used waterways and um, you know have such a special relationship with the water um, with Nibi that for millennia that we do not have access ourselves to clean drinking water. And there's lots of studies. There's other studies that show how that's linked to poor health uh, outcomes, of course, mental health outcomes. But for example, just to like think of that, um, I think of students uh, who have come from different areas and, um, you know, who are afraid to drink uh, tap water, you know, or who, um, who I was told a story of, you know, who are, are used to not showering on a regular basis or having to use baby wipes, you know, to clean under their arms and other things because they've had to conserve water or not had access to clean water. Um, I always, you know, get choked up thinking about, there was a study done, um, I think by McMaster, uh, Dr. Don Martin Hill, um, in Six Nations, and there's a Oneganos, they're a water uh, advocacy group. But there was a study done in Six Nations, because Six Nations is right out, like it's an hour outside of Toronto, it's right outside of Hamilton, it's, you know, um, larger than the surrounding towns um, in terms of population. And 91% of people in Six Nations, it's our largest First Nation in Canada, do not have access to clean drinking water. And uh, so I know we support the food bank and 
with getting access to clean drinking water as much as we can for people who, who access the food bank there. But this is not acceptable. To me, this is absolutely, how can we close the health and mental health outcomes of Indigenous people compared to non-Indigenous people when we don't have clean drinking water? You know, what do we consider as Canadians to be our fundamental human rights in Canada? And so anyways, that's one area where, you know, if we had real, you know, the Canadian government is working towards it. It was supposed to end all of the boil water advisories by 2020. That didn't happen because of COVID probably. Um, but we need to continue. <laughs> this needs to be something that's eliminated. So um, there's simple things like that. But in terms of what can we do? I think social workers, you know, I, I am proud <laughs> of our profession and of social workers because I think we do, we bring awareness, you know, um, we are not afraid to use our voices to, to lift them up and, and to make um, unheard voices heard. And um, so I do, I call upon you as social workers or anyone else who is listening to to try to lift up your voice and lift up the voice of Indigenous peoples so that some of these issues can be heard and responded to. Um, and then there's other things as organizations or, or people working within organizations uh, or corporations that we can also do to respond to the truth and reconciliation calls to action. Specifically in health and mental health, it's things like increase, um, Indigenous professionals, uh, increase the prevalence of Indigenous professionals. I know for, I, for me, there's only 10 Indigenous psychologists across Canada. And so when we think about who's informing these changes or how, you know, can we see positive change in terms of like mental health treatment? Well, there's only so much that 10 people can do. <laughs> across a nation and so you know we need I you know that's why I created this course and I was like I don't this isn't going to get done otherwise so and for us that was a response to our organizational um commitment or our, our corporate commitment so corporations need to also respond to truth and reconciliation calls to action and take corporate action um, part of ours is uh, procuring other Indigenous professionals, so that's why I was saying with the graphic designers, um, and uh, also like putting our money where our mouth is, so like that cost us money this year, a lot of money towards that and towards developing this new program, um, and of course it's a passion of mine, but that is something that my work partner, Thomas Brown, I love him. <laughs> And uh, his, his partner, uh, Dr. Lipoy, that's something that, you know, we had to have discussions about and decide what are we going to prioritize, you know, in terms of our, our corporate goals and, you know, where we're going to uh, put our resources in terms of our time, our money, um, and those things. But then also, you know, how do we, and internally, we're always trying to determine this, is how do we increase our you know reflection or our prevalence of indigenous professionals how do we recruit how do we retain so all of that are within the calls to action for organizations especially for health and mental health is retain indigenous professionals because we know those voices then can be lifted up and it's more likely that 
we can reflect, have a reflection of our culture within services. Um, you know, and then also um, address the distinct needs of these Indigenous um, workers and staff um, and uh, do everything that we can to support them uh, and their training and non-Indigenous professionals as well, their knowledge of, um, of Indigenous culture, of cultural safety, uh, receiving cultural safety training, and then also just training on how to <laughs> how to uh, work with Indigenous people. So those are some ideas. And I've spoken for a long time here, Mary, so I'll <laughs> turn it back to you. Charity, one thing I always love when I talk about you is that you, oh, you are someone who practices what they preach. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you're, you're out there trying to inform policy, but you're also doing the work within your organization that you expect other organizations to do. So you, you are able to like navigate and share and be teach in so many different ways. And that's one thing that I truly respect about you. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you shared all that information with us. Oh, miigwech, and thank you. And I do have to say that does come from my social work training at Laurier. So to give a nod back, you know, just because I did do a split focus at that time, um, you know, focusing on individual, and now I forget what the acronyms are, but the individuals and also the program and policy development. And I think that really helped train my brain. It's like, how do we actually see change that either is, you know, um, that comes top down through policies and systems and programs, but then also is ground up. And uh, often we have to do that ground up work, right? Before, you know, so that it goes up into programs and policies and organizational and even country nationwide change. Um, but it's really important to have an eye on all of those pieces. So miigwech for, for, for honoring me with that compliment. You definitely do awaken the imagination of what's possible because sometimes I think what happens in larger institutions and in governments of policy is there's so many layers that it's hard to like imagine what's possible. But like you said, as you do it through the ground, there's ways that we can be creative and innovative and show what's possible and then move that up through like kind of the bottom up approach that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to, I, I want to go back to a comment that you made about sort of the disproportionality that we're seeing in terms of Indigenous people and Indigenous communities kind of suffering a little bit more in terms of healthcare. And because last year, in last June, we hosted an inspiring conversation with leaders in Indigenous family and children's social services. And there they talked about the millennial scoop and the idea that there's a disproportionality also in Indigenous children in our foster care system. And, you know, as someone who identifies as an Indigenous social worker and your organization does a lot of outreach in Indigenous communities, I wonder what your observations are about how community members are working to cope with the trauma of the recent discoveries of mass grave sites and the current issue of dis disproportionality of Indigenous children in our foster care system. Amiguet, Mary, that another loaded few questions. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, no, they, they are very big questions. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, to speak to the gravesite discoveries, like I, I said, I think that it awakened, it was an awakening for the nation. And I hope that people hold on to that and continue to be awake and to, you know, be responsive to these issues. Um, for Indigenous people, 
Uh, I know for me, it was a trauma reminder. So I'm a, a trauma specialist as well. Um, but it was a reminder definitely of uh, the trauma that was experienced um, and the tragedy which was experienced because of colonial violence um, and because of residential school, but not just residential school. You know, there's lots of trauma that has happened systemically um, and been silenced throughout uh, the centuries, I guess. Uh, since settler settler contact um, but it was it definitely was I know it took we had conversations in our family about uh, the gravesite discoveries um, and I uh, you know even there were stories that I hadn't heard from my uncle um, who I call Mishomis uh, which means grandfather but he's my great uncle um, and he's the, the last living of my Nokomis or my grandmother's generation. I love him dearly. Um, uh, his uh, spirit name and that I call him by is Shimakwa or Big Bear. Um, but it's also my uncle Andy Pettiquan. So uh, shout out to him. But um, he shared with me a story that I had never heard. And uh, that was when he was in residential school at Macintosh. Um, residential school uh sort of outside of Kenora uh Ontario but uh he shared a story of escaping and uh how he and my uncle my other uncle he was eight years old my other uncle was six and the other uncle was just was um just crying every day and begging uh, to go home and um, obviously if you can think of a six-year-old being forcibly taken and removed from their family uh, and put in red you know hair shaved clothes taken um, not allowed to speak their language or they're physically harmed um, and so they weren't even allowed to speak to one another but I guess you know during time outside I think they worked there was a farm that they would talk to one another and so they had planned to run away and what they did first is they knew that other kids that would run away would get caught pretty quick so they decided to hide so he described to me and he's still a, a original language speaker so sometimes the translation is, is difficult but it sounds like so they hid like among the farm um, machinery or something like that in a dark space where no one went so they hid there all day and into the night and then they went in the middle of the night a six and eight year old and escaped into the forest and I think this forest when I look at like I'm afraid of it as an adult now I can't even imagine it in the dark the pitch dark but there's a lot like it's bear country up there there's lots of wolves there's lots of wild ferocious animals um, but anyways, they went and it was a two day journey home and, uh, he, you know, apparently, you know, like they were shivering and cold and they went through, but they were so happy to escape residential school. They were so happy. They weren't caught and brought back. But my uncle tells how his six-year-old brother got, um, sick with pneumonia and died a week later. And uh, I just think about his story, which I hadn't heard. 
And I think, you know, it reawakened these stories. Um, but these are stories that we need to remember and we need to hold on to and that we need to integrate into our, our personal stories, our family stories, our community, our nation's stories. Um, so we don't repeat these same things. Um, but for me, I think about the risk that my uncle took. Uh, he said that he escaped multiple times. He kept being dragged back and found um, by the police and different, you know, school staff. Um, but uh, I think about the risk that he took and that my other uncle took to be able to have freedom. And so I often ask people, you know, what risks are we willing to take? you know, to be able to really emerge out of genocide's impact on our Indigenous people, to really support truth and reconciliation. Um, and, you know, how do we take steps towards that? You know, what are we willing to risk our discomfort or, you know, are, are we willing to sacrifice some of our personal time or our finances or whatever it is um, to really be able to take those steps towards reconciliation. So in terms of, yes, you know, what was the response like? I think many families similar to ours had these reminders. And um, to me, um, although it's difficult, this is something that fuels, fuels my um, further action, my further commitment to community. Um, it angers me, it saddens me but it also gives me courage. Um, my uncle has been, you know, such a beautiful example to me in that, um, the courage of an eight-year-old um, for freedom. And um, so I, you know, I, I think there is a shifting and a shaping and, you know, more of an understanding even than 10 years ago um, of, you know, how these stories can, uh, help us to move forward for good, uh, for Minogamadzwin or the good life. And so I think a lot of families experienced that, but there was also a lot, um, there are a lot of survivors still, and there's a lot of intergenerational survivors, um, people who have experienced a lot of trauma in terms of Indigenous community. And these are trauma reminders. And I think, um, you know, obviously I'm a CBT therapist, you know, hearing my, my Michelle Miss's story, uh, to me, I was able to process it and I'm a trauma therapist, so I can fit it within this larger story or integrate it into my life in a meaningful way. Um, but what we noticed definitely in our clinics was there was an outpouring, um, you know, and each time that there's been more gravesite discoveries, um, of people, experiencing tremendous sadness, um, tremendous grief and loss, um, and a lot of trauma uh, response, um, or a lot of experiencing a lot of the emotional pain that comes with trauma and PTSD. So uh, definitely in terms of mental health, I mean, I think it's good to know these things, um, but we need more, we need more, 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 more um, to close these gaps, but also as the country goes through these trauma reminders, I think we need more, I think even just public grief and loss, more memorial sites. And that's one of the 
calls to action. There's a whole section, um, missing children and burial information of just like properly labeling, going through cemeteries and of course the gravesite discoveries, but having a proper, just like technical things like um, a proper uh, data uh, a list of, you know, death registrants and so, you know, there's these things, and I know I work with a couple groups of amazing people, actually, who dedicate their time, their resources, and actually, a lot of these are Americans, even, um, so on the other, in the States, um, but uh, I work with some tremendous people who, uh, like one right now, um, one group that I work with, uh, the Todd Larkin group, because he's the one who brought us together, he did a lot of work, um, in the Navajo Nation during COVID, incredible work. He's a hero of mine actually. Um, in responding, like they did door-to-door -door drops of food and brought clean water there and because the COVID was so prevalent there. Um, but uh, brought together a really fantastic group. Callahan Williams, he's a tech guy, uh, owns his own tech company. He's building an sort of like an indigenous ancestry. And hopefully I don't get in trouble because we're not supposed to use the ancestry logo or anything like that. But it's just for people to understand. <laughs> so it's a family tree where you know indigenous people can go and start like linking where do I belong? Because you know, coming back to the the uh, overrepresentation in in child protection services, you know, a lot of people, and even within my own family, it's like, oh, I had a cousin I never knew about that is in Halifax, or I, you know, this relative, I literally, actually this past year, found out about like three new relatives that one in Vancouver, all throughout the nation from coast to coast. And I was like, oh, like we never knew about that. Like my mom and her, siblings were part of the 60s scoop and they reconnected but there was a lot of you know intergenerational trauma and things like that and so um we need a place to be able to gather to gather as indigenous people and as indigenous families um and there's there's all sorts of ways to volunteer and get involved no matter what your skill sets are but I think as social workers I mean we need to raise our voices we need to recognize as well within this period of time, we are at a beautiful bridging in terms of, you know, actual meaningful truth and reconciliation, but we also have to unlearn a lot of things. We need to really critically look at the systems that we are working within, that we belong to, and really evaluate, are, is, are these my values? Is this what I wanna be contributing to? Is this really, you know, responding to these truth and reconciliation calls to action? Is this really reflecting BIPOC voices? Is this really, you know, using all of our social work values to really evaluate, you know, these social systems and lift up our voices where we can to be able to create meaningful change? Charity, thank you so much for sharing your personal stories as well in this conversation. I think that's, I was very, I got a little emotional there when you were talking about the story about your family and and in the residential school situation, but even just finding your family. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we take it for granted that 
we have our family, we know who they are, but you're discovering people like on a yearly basis. It's wow. Like I, I can't, um, and you think about, let me just jump in there with that <laughs> child protection stuff, because you think about child protection. I myself was in child protection services. So I was in foster care for about six months. My parents are divorced. Both parents are indigenous, lots of intergenerational experiences of trauma. I ended up in foster care for six months, but I, so I highly identify with children in care. Um, but I think about those who are apprehended at birth and I know a lot of people that like just come into my life and I'm like, oh, this is kismet or serendipitous or, you know, creator ancestors at work here, but like that are like, oh yes, like I have adopted this indigenous baby and we have no idea where they belong. Like we don't know what their nation is and we don't have any kind of like child protection services couldn't get their status card and they don't have access to any of these benefits, you know, or they don't have any idea who their birth family is. And so there are a lot. And when you think about like the 60s scoop, you know, these, the, this, these stolen generations, like we're in, still in the millennial scoop, they say, right? Like, and when you think of half, more than half of, you know, children, zero to four, or I think all of child protection, uh, foster care, uh, crown ward children are indigenous, you know, who, you know, is following up. And I know, I know, I know our social workers and child protection services, they are overworked. They are under supported often. They are stretched to the limits. How, how do they have the capacity to go and figure out who are all these, all these, um, children, what are their relations? And when you think about that in terms of our indigenous identity, like it's all my relations, like we consider all of creation, all our relations, but we are connected to clans, to um, people, to communities, to family, to kinship systems, to nations that stand behind us that, you know, uh, are, are part of who we are. And so when children are in care, they lose that. They lose that beautiful connection to kinship. And I know they try to do more to support that. But I, there's so much that I see just as like a person, an Indigenous person out there in society where people commonly, like I would say every couple of weeks I meet an Indigenous person or someone who's been kind of like cared for by other kin who are non-Indigenous or who maybe don't know what First Nation they came from because we are transient people as well, um, but um, where they don't know where they belong. And so um, there's this huge disconnection. And I think as, you know, I, I try to connect to images of joy and <laughs> of these, you know, appreciative um, of uh, mindfully appreciating potential good and joyful outcomes for people um, too. So I imagine, you know, people reconnecting with their families. I think like our indigenous population as it is, is growing at five times the rate of non-indigenous people. And are like, we're taking up a larger and larger percentage of the overall Canadian population. I think if people were to actually connect with their communities, we would see like 
indigenous population is probably 15%, 20% of our Canadian national population. Um, so I look forward to that day. And I think, you know, as we mindfully, intentionally, you know, um, take our own personal risks, make our own personal sacrifices towards truth and reconciliation, that we can see more of that healing and connection happen. Charity, I have one more loaded question. Sorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm following up with this and I'm listening to this idea of connection and I'm listening yeah. to the like, idea of the importance of like having that community. And I just, I wonder how you feel about like the future of social work and its place as we are trying to thrive through this pandemic where connection has been the thing that we don't have and that we're, we're, we're striving and wanting and desperately wanting for and like not even sure how to do anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think social work, it has a unique, it's uniquely positioned and it has a unique population um, of wonderfully big hearted <laughs> people who I think are, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, and maybe this is um, biased thinking, of course, because I'm a social worker, but I do think that we are um, a unique uh, population of people who are connected to these um, concerns and who can see, who are uniquely positioned to also see ways through. And if you look back, I mean, social workers have been at the heart of many movements, of a lot of social progress. Um, and, you know, even when I'm working in other professions, I'm like, oh, we have it right. We, you know, we do see, we see the gaps. We see where, you know, we are within systems. And I would call us to, you know, to be more introspective of that. Um, but then also to, you know, see how we can connect within our social work communities. And I would say connect to Indigenous community in meaningful ways. Make it part of your personal, your organization, all your family commitment to truth and reconciliation, um, because I think that we can be those bridges, we can be those connectors that we're so good at being, um, and we can be, you know, these voices that really contribute to meaningful social change, meaningful truth and reconciliation, um, and meaningful progress. Um, and I think sharing, right, sharing, having opportunities to share our successes, our stories, the ways that we're doing these things. Um, I think we also need to be more meaningful to create opportunities uh, for these voices and our stories to be heard as social workers um, for more of that connection to happen. But I'm, I am optimistic <laughs> about, especially, like I said, our unique placement as social workers from an indigenous spiritual you know, perspective are we as people come here we say as as uh, spiritual beings on a physical journey at a very unique each of our spirits at very unique times in history um to you know travel or or walk down a certain path on um, mother earth's back or on turtle island and i really do have trust i guess um that everyone in positions of power and not and those graduates those new graduates everyone within that cycle and hoop of social work kind of development in life 
can meaningfully contribute to this very important time in history right now for truth and reconciliation. Charity, I'm going to ask a follow-up and still call it the same question. I'll call it part B of that question. (laughs) (laughs) How can, because you're, you're talking about social workers kind of like engaging in the Indigenous community, but how can social work and social workers, maybe just social work, the field itself, um, reconcile its role in some of the systems and like the atrocities that have taken place and that currently take place? Mm-hmm. Like there's a disproportionality in our foster care system that's driven by social services and social workers. So how, but driven maybe is the wrong word, but like is facilitated. I agree. No, no, I, <laughs> I also agree. And I thought a lot about this. Um, and I think that it's that we need those voices I think, you know, purposely inviting in um, or or purposely creating space for truth and reconciliation champions or organizational um, truth and reconciliation or or cultural safety um, representatives, you know, putting our money, again, put the money where the mouth is, you know, create these positions, fund these positions, create intentional space to be uncomfortable, to unlearn the things that we've learned, to evaluate where we are um, as people, where what the positions do to contribute to ongoing, the ongoing burden of genocide, but also to the reconciliation of that. So positions, teams, the organization itself, um, and then steps, you know, and it could be beginning steps, intermediate, advanced, uh, creating a strategic plan. So this is the program and planning part of me, but creating that strategic plan, making, and, and we have on our website, a, you know, truth and reconciliation commitment for annual plan, but making those really clear commitments to that with the intention of creating space to evaluate, to be under scrutiny, to be uncomfortable, because that's, that's the sacrifice of reconciliation is to make yourself uncomfortable, to really hear the truth. And I think when it comes to those systems, um, we haven't come to that place yet where we hear the truth and we, we respond to the truth of how we're continuing these cycles of genocide. Charity, thank you. Thank you for being so open and so vulnerable and authentic here and sharing with us your professional and personal experience. We will include links to your new course for those interested, as well as your contact information for your organization. And I cannot wait for our paths to cross again. Thank you for all you do in the community and for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you, Mary.